words of ancient scripture hidden in our hearts. I need to tell you that I shared this journey we're on just a few weeks ago with a very, uh, how, how can I put this? The setting is picturesque. The setting is truly beautiful. On a very small campus in Austria, about, oh, 15 miles from the German border. Before I pray with you, I promised that I would bring greetings to you, all of you, from the faculty there and the student body at our school called Bogenhofen. Have you heard of Bogenhofen? German is the language. Austrian is the culture. Bogenhofen. It's, it's, it's a school of theology. About 40 to 50 theology majors that are there uh, from across Europe. And then it's a senior high school. So it's a combination. About 100, 100, about 100 senior high students and then 40 to 50 uh, theology majors. I want to thank you because a number of you were praying for that week of prayer. That's what we did over there. We conducted a week of prayer. God heard your prayers and gave two altar calls, but the altar call on Wednesday night, right in the middle of the week of prayer, 18 of those students, you know, 100, 140 students, 18 of them made the decision to be baptized in Jesus Christ. It was, an, uh, it was such an honor to be journeying with that campus. I tell you what, I, I am very impressed, very impressed with the way they preserve the Adventist culture, the milieu, uh, the witness they have, and from that campus, they are impacting the life of the church in Europe. And they really deserve our prayers, our, our partnership across the pond with them. The little school of Bogenhofen, there in Austria. Their hearts resonate with the same message that moves your heart and your spirit as well. And this journey that we are on, taking the Word of God and hiding it in our hearts. You know, that's a cross-cultural journey. That is a global, that is a global calling. And so, as we continue, I want to pray, before we move back into Scripture with you, pray that the Spirit will open our minds to the teaching God has for us today. Dear Father, thank you. Thank you for the, thank you for the global family of the Church of Christ. Thank you for the shared passion and commitment to not, not only the Word made flesh, but the Word made parchment, the Word in writing. As we continue growing that very passion in our own hearts in this place, we humbly ask that the Holy Spirit would also continue to be our guide and our teacher. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, all of that was to set up uh, the, the opening illustration and story. Because four hours away from Bogenhofen, after the week of prayer was over, four hours away uh, by train, is that great and beautiful city on the Danube, Vienna, Austria. Now, Karen and I had never been to Vienna before, and so we jumped on the train on Sunday after the week of prayer, headed over to spend... Uh, uh, parts of three days in that great city. Without a doubt, the most impressive piece of architecture from history, the most luxurious historical site that we visited, was the Schönbrunn, which is the summer palace of Maria Theresa. 
and later her, uh, her grandson, Franz Joseph. They, they were uh, rulers, of course, of the Austrian Empire in the 18th, 19th, and Franz Joseph right, right up into uh, the 20th century. But Karen and I went on a guided tour, audio tour with an English little uh, boy speaking in our ears. And we went to the emperor's bedroom. Now, this is not his royal majestic bedroom. We saw that bedroom as well. That's the room that he shared with his queen, Queen Elizabeth. He called her Cece. This is a much smaller room. And the reason it's smaller is because he moved to that room after Cece, in 1898, was assassinated by a deranged anarchist. Also, by the way, their only son, their only son, Rudolf, committed suicide. And then the emperor's brother, Maximilian, from Mexico, was also assassinated. So the emperor knew the meaning of heartache in his life. But he moves to this smaller bedroom. And as our guided tour took us through that room, I noticed a piece of furniture in particular. Right there beside the emperor's bed. Every morning upon awakening, we learned, the emperor crawled out of bed and went to kneel on that little kneeling bench beside his royal bed, atop of which still sits his Bible. A kneeling bench beside the emperor's bed because even a king must bow before the monarch of the universe. And get this, folks. Even the monarch of the universe, when he comes here, as he did once upon a time, even the monarch of the universe did bow before the holy God and before God's holy scriptures. I am simply astounded, as I've been reminded of late, at the elevated status of the holy scriptures in the heart and life of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning I want to share with you the preeminent place the Bible claimed and held in His life. And I'm doing so for a reason, because there are some even in the Christian circles where you and I move, who grant to Holy Scripture neither the preeminence nor the authority that Christ granted to it, who tell us that the Bible is not a factual account, nor is it an accurate historical record of earth's beginnings or even of earth's history. It's a good book, a good moral tale that deserves our attention to be sure, and in things moral, no doubt it deserves our obedience, but it is not a factual accounting of God's interactions with the human race from the beginning of time. For people such as that, and you will meet them, trust me, you may share what we discover today. And we'll get to that study guide in just a moment. But first, let's turn to the life of Jesus. Let's turn to the life of Jesus in Holy Scripture. And let's not go, let's not go to the Gospels. Let's go to the Psalms. Go back to the Psalter. Go back to Psalm 40 that Jan read with us just a moment ago, please. Open your Bible to Psalm 40. You're saying, oh, come on, Dwight, I, 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 know, the, I know the superscription there at the top of the, the chapter. It says it's, from, it's a psalm of David. But I don't want to go to the words of the ancient king. I want to, you said we're going to be thinking about the life of Jesus. And, of course, my friend, you are absolutely right. The psalm was written by David. But please remember this, that in the psalms, what is so often true of David was a predicted reality for the son of David. That's why you have Psalm 22. What does David cry out in Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are, those are not only David's words. Those are the words of the Messiah himself hanging on Calvary. Psalm 40. You're going to see that, in fact, these are also the Messiah's words. Psalm 40. By the way, if you didn't bring a Bible, just take our uh, 
New King James Version. I'll be in the King James today, but you can take the New King James that's in the pew rack in front of you, and that would be page 383. Look at Psalm 40. And by the way, I need to make this, this, this little caveat. The spiritual experience of David on occasion, not always, no, 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 not always, but on occasion, the spiritual experience of David mirrored the life of the son of David to come. Not always. We know the big not always is in David's life. But on occasion, and the Spirit took those similarities and said, it's going to be the same way with the son of David. All right, Psalm 40. Psalm 40. Here we go. Let's read verse 6. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. You've opened up. I can hear you now. I can hear you, God. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Verse 7. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. Those very words in Hebrews chapter 10 are directly attributed to Christ himself. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus spoke those words. Hebrews 10 makes it clear. In fact, before we read the verse that follows, because you see, if Hebrews chapter 10 suggests that verses 6 and 7 are, can be attributed to Christ, then that means the verse that follows verses 6 and 7 can also be attributed to Christ. But before we read verse 8, I wish you'd write down, take your study guide out, and just jot that, make sure we get that fact down, please. Take your study guide today. Thank you, ushers, for uh, putting the study guide in the hands of those who would like to have a copy. There is a list of 23 that you must have. Do not miss that list. You won't get it anywhere else but right here. So please raise your hand to make sure you get that study guide, a list of 23. And those of you listening on the radio right now or watching on uh, television, let me put the website on the screen for you, www.pmchurch.tv. Click onto our series, Hid in My Heart, and this particular teaching, In the Emperor's Bedroom, all right? Hit in my heart in the emperor's bedroom. When you click on there, you will get the identical study guide that we are now going to fill out together. Key point. Very key point. It's the first box there. According to Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7, the words of Psalm 40 are the testimony of Jesus. Write that in, please. Of Jesus. The words of Psalm 40 are the testimony of Jesus. Hebrews 10 attributes these words in Psalm 40. That's the point. The, he, he, it is attributed, these words, to Jesus. Which means, keep writing, that the confession of verse 8, right in verse 8, the confession of verse 8 belongs to Him as well. Now, we can read it from your Bible, but I have the verse right there in the study guide, so you can read it right in the study guide. And what is the confession of verse 8? I delight to do Thy will, O my God, yea, Thy law is within my heart. Write that in, please. Fill in the word. Yea, Thy law is within my heart. Keep writing. The Hebrew word for law is Torah. In its entirety, in its broadest definition, the Torah, fill it in please, includes the entirety of God's written, written revelation. All of it, the Torah. A few days ago, our brand new Chief Justice... John Roberts, you're following this story, I know you are, put his hand upon the Holy Scriptures and swore, pledged, that he would uphold the Constitution of the United States, so help me God. Isn't that right? Yes, he did. Now, when he placed his hand upon the Bible, in a limited sense, what he, you, you could say he was, he was swearing, pledging, 
to preserve the Constitution as the original document, the original document of the Constitution that became the bedrock of American jurisprudence and governance. But I remind you that Chief Justice Roberts, by extension, was also pledging to uphold the laws of the land that have expanded from that original document. I'm going to uphold them all. It was that way with the Torah. In its most limited sense, it's the core of the divine law. We would call it the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. But the, but the Torah also includes the application of that law throughout the history of God's interaction with His chosen people until finally the Torah, the Torah came to include the entire written corpus of God's revelation. It just represents all of God's writing. So that when the Son of David declares... Oh, I delight to do thy will. Oh, my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. When he cries that out, he's saying, all of Holy Scripture, your entire written revelation I have in my heart. Which means that if Jesus spoke those words, and he did, Psalm 40, verse 8, Jesus also spoke the words of Psalm 119, verse 11. Say that with me. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. I delight to do thy will. Oh, my God, thy law is within my heart. See? What a beautiful expression. Oh, my, isn't that, isn't that, doesn't that just move your heart? But, ladies and gentlemen, this is more than a beautiful testimony. In actuality, please note the place that the Word of God did hold in the heart and mind of Christ. For the remainder of our study, let me remind you of two attitudes. Jot these down, please. Two attitudes that Jesus brought to Holy Scripture. Just two of them we'll share. And then I'll sit down. Attitude number one. Jesus taught the value of Holy Scripture. Write that in, please. Jesus taught the value of Holy Scripture. Keep, keep, keep writing. Jesus is the only figure in the Bible to use the phrase, Have you not read? Keep writing. He used it nine times, that phrase, in the Gospels. Over and over, in the midst of debate, in the heart of teaching, Jesus inquires of his, Hey, 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 time, time, time out. Ha, ha. Haven't you read the Bible? Have you not read? You know why? Because he was not only big on reading the Word of God, he was huge on upholding it as the ultimate authority and arbiter in all human life. He upholds it. Case in point. Let me give you an example. In fact, let's go to... Uh, I want you to see the first one of these nine. It's in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 12. Matthew, chapter 12, please. This is a familiar story. Matthew 12... Remember, they've, they've gone to church and they found out that the church that they worshipped in that day didn't have a potluck afterwards. Doesn't that just bother you when you're out visiting and the church that you go to doesn't have a potluck? And they didn't have a potluck at this church. Oh, Jesus' disciples are frosted. Can you believe it? We got the Messiah with us and there's no potluck. Nobody even invited us home. So they're walking through the fields and they say, I'm so hungry, I'm not waiting until supper. And they got some of that cord and the grain and they just kind of... Organic diet. The Pharisees are walking along and they say, hey, whoa, time out. Master, look at your, look at your naughty boys. They are threshing wheat on the Holy Sabbath. And Jesus looks at them and he says, time out, time out for you. Verse 3, and he answered them and said, hast thou not, have ye not read? Haven't you read the Bible? Look at verse 3. Haven't you read the Bible? Don't you know the story about David who went into the temple sanctuary, took out holy bread, broke the law, and ate it? You see, need supersedes creed. That was true for David. It's true for the disciples. But there's, there's the case in point. Hold it, guys. Don't, what are you? You the professors? 
You're the professors of the people? You must not read Scripture. Haven't you read? Nine times Jesus challenged in the middle of a debate. Challenged. Hold it, hold it. Why haven't you read the Bible? It's big on the Bible. Why? I delight to do thy will, O oh my God, for, yea, thy law is within my heart. That's why. Over and over again, Jesus taught it. Jesus taught the value of Holy Scripture. And, oh, by the way, may I remind you that the only part of the Bible Jesus had was the Old Testament. Write that down, please. That's why Jesus was big on the Old Testament. By the way, that's a word of caution to those Christians who call themselves New Testament Christians. I am a New Testament Christian. Oh, are you? Because Jesus wasn't. Oh, but of course we praise God. Of course we do for the New Testament. But never at the expense of rejecting the Old Testament. Jesus was an Old Testament Christian. That's the only Bible he had. In fact, let me quote Rene Pache in his book, The Inspiration and Authority of Scripture. Just keep your pen moving because you're going to fill this quotation in. We can say, Pache writes, we can say with all reverence that Jesus Christ was practically saturated with the Scriptures which he knew... Quoting John 7:15. now, having never learned. What's that mean? Jesus never went to the seminary. What? You never went, you, you, you never went to Bible college? You never went to the seminary? Nope. How does he know so much? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Did it without the education. Oh, he was educated. Don't kid yourself. So that's Pache's point. We can say with all reverence that Jesus Christ was practically saturated with the Scriptures, which he knew having never learned. Now, jot this in, please. One-tenth, one-tenth of his words were taken from the Old Testament. Keep writing. In the four Gospels, 180 of the 1,800 verses which report his discourses are either quotations of the written revelation or else direct allusions to it. Jesus quoted, he saturated, saturated with the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus taught the value. Jesus taught the value of Holy Scripture by quoting it right and left. Under demonic attack, under ecclesiastical challenge, in the midst of pastoral teaching, he quoted Scripture. In fact, I went through and counted them. What? I wish I would gotten this before we put the study guide together. Jot this one down, will you please? I'll put it on the screen for you. It is written. See, the reason I didn't check this out, because I figured, well, he only said it is written three times. It was in his temptations. I went through and counted them. In the Gospels, 20 times. Now, some of these will be uh, duplicates. But the point is, the record has Jesus 20 times stating the words, It is written. 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 Not just in His temptations. It is written. Jesus was saturated. Pache is right. Saturated with Holy Scripture. Jesus taught the value of Holy Scripture. And here comes the other one. Attitude number two. Jesus trusted the veracity of... Write that big word in, please. The veracity of Holy Scripture. What does veracity mean? Keep your pen moving. Jesus accepted the authority and accuracy, accuracy of the Scriptures. Here comes a list. Norman Goley, I'm reading his book right now. By the way, published by Andrews University Press. Comes right out of our own university publishing house here. Norman Goley, brand new book. He's doing a a several-volume series in systematic theology. This is his first. It's called Systematic Theology Prolegomena. I'm waiting my way through it. It's good. It's good. Good reading. In this book, he lists 
23 times, 23, write that number in please, 23 times in which Christ confirms and affirms the historicity or the historical accuracy of the Old Testament. 23 times. I'm going to run them. Rapid fire sequence. I wanted you to have the list so you have it now, but let me run it by you. Number one, the creation of Adam and Eve. Jesus says God created Adam and Eve. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? I'll tell you what the big deal is because there are some who will come to you and say, you just don't have to believe that part of the Bible. You can believe the rest, but just don't believe that part, please. Because God didn't create them. God used long ages evolution. And they came out of a primal soup. And after a series of hominids, ape-like human structures, finally there came two intelligent beings that the light dawned. Then God said, oh, I'll call that Adam and Eve. That's what some will teach you. I'm not mocking their teaching. I am challenging it. I am challenging it on the authority of the Holy Scripture and the Lord Jesus Christ. Either Jesus was a nincompoop that didn't understand Holy Scripture himself, or it's true, he embraced the veracity and historicity of the historical account in that book. You have two choices. You have two choices. Not three. You have two. You may follow Jesus in this one, or you may say he was wrong. I don't accept it. He was naive. He was undeveloped. He didn't have enough. Give him enough time, he would have known that it couldn't be true. Look at us. Look what we found. Can't be true. Jesus can't be true. Beware that voice. Beware that voice. 23 instances where Jesus affirms the historicity of the Old Testament. Number one, the creation of Adam and Eve. Number two, the murder of Abel. Number three, Noah, his ark, and the flood. Isn't that something? Hit the pause button. Even believed in the flood. Apparently, for him at least, it was not some little epic myth narrative that got attached to his own culture, and so he accepted it. Apparently, he believed it. Accepted the veracity, the historicity of the document itself. Number four, Abraham. Number five, circumcision on the eighth day. Number six, the destruction of Sodom. Number seven, Lot's wife. Number eight, Isaac and Jacob. Number nine, the calling of Moses. And by the way, those of you listening on the radio, every one of these, if you get that study guide, you'll have the Bible reference, the gospel reference, reference to it, where Jesus affirms the historicity. Number nine, the calling of Moses. Number ten, the law given by Moses. Number eleven, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Number twelve, the manna. Number thirteen, the brazen serpent. Number fourteen, David eating the showbread. Number fifteen, the queen of Sheba. Number sixteen, the wisdom and glory of Solomon. Number seventeen, Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. Number eighteen, the future role of Elijah. Number nineteen, Elisha and the name and the leper. Number twenty, Jonah and the whale. Oh, the whale story isn't true. You don't believe the whale story, do you, Jesus? I believe the whale story, he says. As Jonah was in the whale three days and three nights, I will be in the whale. I will be underground three days. I believe the whale story. Number 21, the judgments of Tyre and Sidon. Number 22, the death of Zechariah. Number 23, the prophecy of Daniel. Oh, come on, Jesus. You don't believe Daniel. Don't you know that we have finally figured it out that Daniel is history written afterwards? It's not prophecy. It's a trick to make it look like prophecy. It's history written afterwards. Jesus said, I don't believe you. In fact, Daniel has yet to come true. In 70 A.D., you will see Daniel come true. He's speaking yet future. 500 years before, and words are written, and he says, in, 70, in 40 years from now, you'll see Daniel come true. History written in advance, not written afterwards. That's what prophecy is. That's what Jesus taught. 
23, there they are, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus trusted the veracity, the incontrovertible veracity of Holy Scripture. And so must I and so must you. Irrespective, and please don't misunderstand me here, irrespective of what liberal scholars have tried to dupe unread Christians into believing, I don't care what initials are behind that name. Just because you have initials behind your name doesn't make you right. Jesus had zero initials behind His name, and He was the most reverend and the most right. So don't be, don't be wowed by initials. They're great to have. They don't make you the last word. Trust me. I'm reading a quotation now. Because Jesus Christ is the infallible authority. Let's put it on the screen, please. His estimate of Scripture must be a part of that infallible authority. His pronouncement upon those 23 incidences must be also accepted as authoritative. Anybody who comes along to you and whispers to you that you don't have to believe that part of the Bible because science has proven it wrong, beware that voice. I'm reading a book right now entitled Reclaiming the Center. It's a series of essays written by evangelical scholars. One of the scholars is named Stephen Wellam. And I'm going to put the words on the screen for you. He writes, Scripture is God's own divine interpretation through human authors of His own redemptive acts. Scripture is God interpreting what He's doing that carries with it a true, objective, and authoritative interpretation of His redemptive plan. That is why Scripture must be viewed as first-order language, I like this, as the spectacles by which we view the world. As Christians, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians in particular, you and I put spectacles on whenever we go to the world and we, uh, we articulate our worldview. We, we articulate that view on the basis of the spectacles we have on. We see the world differently. Why? Because we, we let Holy Scripture be the defining paradigm. That's why. I like that. The, the Scripture must be viewed as first-order language, as the spectacles by which we view the world. The scientific world, yes. The world of nature, yes. Political world, yep. Jesus trusted the veracity of Holy Scripture's authoritative worldview. In fact, you've you got to get this. This will just... This one blew me out of the water. Even to the place, get this, Jesus went so far as to declare that even His own authority as the Word of God made flesh, John 1.14, was superseded by the authority of the Word of God made parchment. He says, this is more, this is higher. He submitted Himself. You say, show me that, Dwight. I'll show it to you. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Take a look at this. Matthew chapter 5. I want you to see this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Familiar words, but revisit them. See them again for the first time. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Red letters in my Bible because it's the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law, the Torah, the written revelation. Think not I've come to destroy the Torah or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. What does Jesus mean in verse 17? You'll find out in verse 18. What's He saying? For verily, amen, I say to you, 
till heaven and earth pass. One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Which being interpreted means even the words that I am speaking to you now will never supersede or abrogate the word I spoke to the law and the prophets of old. The word, the word of God will last until heaven and earth pass. And ladies and gentlemen, that's a whole lot longer into the future than today. Heaven's still here and so is the earth. Until heaven and earth are destroyed, the Word of God stands. It will stand. It is the ultimate arbiter and authority for the human race. Norman Gully writes, fill this in please, it was Christ's view that the Word of God is as enduring as the God of the Word. And oh, I like that. The Word of God is as enduring as the God of the Word. You cannot play them against each other. Impossible. Some try to do it. They try to play it against each other. Hopefully that one will grow weaker. You can't do it. Impossible. There they are, ladies and gentlemen, two compelling attitudes of Christ toward the Bible. Number one, Jesus taught the value of Holy Scripture. Number two, Jesus trusted the veracity of Holy Scripture. Why? Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. That's why. In fact, one sentence left for you to write down. When the author... Would you write that down, please? When the author... Now, God didn't handwrite the Scriptures. I know that, and so do you. We're a university congregation here. When the, but God wrote the book. And you know exactly what I mean. When the author, capital A, author... When the author of the Bible submits to the authority of the Bible, he is an authoritative example for us to follow. Ladies and gentlemen, the author has the authority to set for us an authoritative example. That's the point. If it was true for Jesus, it has to be true for you and me. How can we accept a form of scholarship that exalts itself above Christ. Neo-Orthodoxy has done that. Exalted itself above Christ. When it comes to Holy Scripture, we cannot, we dare not, as a community of faith, we cannot, we cannot be, we cannot be swept by that siren song. That's why Andrews University, 3,000 students, stands. It must stand on the bedrock of Holy Scripture, the ultimate authority. The author surely has the authority to set for us an authoritative example. I want to end with a personal testimony. My heart has been moved to watch so many of you who are joining me in, a, in seeking to memorize Holy Scripture as we never have before. <laughs> I wish the rest of you could have heard it this Wednesday night. Young and old alike gathered all across this sanctuary out loud, just repeating their memory, their assigned memorized verses to one another. And I thought to myself, I wonder how this must sound to the heart of God. 
how his heart must rejoice. I mean, how do you think it sounded to Jesus? Here are a people doing what I did all my life. Hiding the word in my heart. Oh, I tell you what. He will have a people. Christ will have a people at the end of time who will be like Him in this regard. They will hide His Word deep in their hearts. He will have a people. And I want to be a part of that people. You say, oh, come on, Dwight. He's not going to have, they're not going to be people that are big on memorization. Oh, my friend, you obviously need to reread Isaiah 51, verse 7, where God speaks of His people who have their, my law in their hearts. Isaiah 51, 7. Take a look at this from the New Living Translation. I like this. Listen to me, God speaking. You who know right from wrong. Maybe he's talking to you, my friend. You who know right from wrong. You who cherish my law in your hearts. Do not be afraid of people's scorn or their slanderous talk. Don't you listen to those voices that, well, come on, you don't have to do that, boy. You just kind of meander along. Meander along. You'll make it. No, you won't. You won't make it. The crisis that is coming on this planet will not stand for meandering. You can't amble along. Not for the crisis ahead. Jesus said this crisis is going to be so significant that His very closest friends, almost, His very closest friends, almost. Do you understand what He's saying? I know I'm repeating myself, but do you understand what He's saying? You cannot keep living life as usual. It's no longer business as usual. Thy word have I hid in my heart so that when that crisis comes, I'll have that word. I'll have it. Yea, I delight to do thy will, oh my God. So anyway, tell you what, I want to be a part of that people. I delight to do thy will, oh my God. I want to be a part of that people. Don't you want to be a part of that people? Oh, come on, I know you do. So anyway, I'm out, so here's my personal testimony. So I'm, I'm meeting with the staff on Monday, our senior leadership team, and I shared this testimony with them. I said, guys, I just need to tell all of you. And I looked into their eyes around this table. I need to tell you. I need to tell you that except, except for learning how to have devotional worship in the morning with God. When I got saved in the seminary as a graduate student here, that's when I learned it. Except for that. I have not found a single spiritual discipline that has more significantly impacted my life with the benefits God has promised attendant to it. I've not found anything like this. And I've only been doing this for six weeks. You know what? Last time we were dealing with this subject, before I went to Austria, I shared with you the seven phenomenal benefits of memorizing the Word of God. I am realizing them. I am tasting them. You say, what are you, some kind of a braggart? No. I am simply telling you that what by faith I was teaching you, I have found to be true. I'm finding it true. It's impacted me professionally. It's impacted me personally. It's impacted my preaching. It's impacted my pastoring. It has made an effect on my life. I will never be the same again. I told you that at the beginning of this series, and I was saying it strictly by faith. I'm telling you the truth. You will never be the same again. And so I want to say to you in closing, imitate me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. That's what Paul said. You can follow me. You can follow me 
as I follow Jesus. Because I believe Jesus Himself, the record of His life is proof. He hid the Word of God in His heart. And we must do the same. It's a no-brainer to me that the secret to His victory was hiding His Word in His heart. And that will be the secret to your victory. That must be the secret to your victory and my victory. I want to be like Jesus. How about you? Isaac Watts wrote these words, Lord, I have made Thy Word my choice, my lasting heritage. There shall my noblest powers rejoice, my warmest thoughts engage. I want to be like the great nobility and saints of Scripture and history. I want to be just like them. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be so saturated with the Word of God that when I open my mouth, that's, that's what comes out. Holy Father, You know the longing of our hearts. Simply put, we wish to be like Jesus. We cannot replicate the pattern, but we can imitate it, just like Paul. And so, dear God, please, I know we have a thousand voices that clamor for our attention every spare moment we have. But dear God, may Your voice be louder and may Your Word prove stronger. And may that voice, through that Word, be hidden deep, deep within our hearts for the glory of Jesus and for the victory, for the victory He has promised. And now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever.